From the McGrath Institute for Church Life and OSV Podcast, this is Church Life Today. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. We had compassion for those left behind, but thought that our job was to provide them an opportunity, no matter how small, to get where we are. We didn't think about changing our definition of success. Those words come from Chris Arnotti. His definition of success had been tied to upward mobility, ascending socially and professionally to the point of becoming a well-compensated Wall Street investor who happened to pick up a Ph.D. in theoretical physics along the way. But eventually, he went searching for something else, for other places and indeed for other people. He walked. He walked right into the kinds of towns and abandoned cities that most successful Americans turned away from, even ridiculed. He paid attention to the people in these places, learned their stories, entered as much as he could into their lives, discovering the ways in which they searched for meaning or sought community. The result of these immersions is his book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in back row America. It is an account, among other things, of discovering new meaning in life. Chris, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. So you earned a PhD in theoretical physics. You worked at an elite Wall Street firm for 20 years, and then you started walking into American towns that had reputations for being some of the worst, the most dangerous, the least salvageable. What were you looking for? Um, Originally pigeons. Actually, (laughs) um, I had kind of become uh, frustrated with my Wall Street career over the 20 years. It was kind of a slow erosion and then a quick realization that what I was doing was kind of pointless. Mm. (laughs) Um, And I would go on these long walks around just to kind of clear my head. Um, And when I started realizing along the walks, it was about meeting people, kind of learning learning in a different way. I had always learned both as a PhD in physics and as a Wall Street trader from numbers. And now I was kind of realizing in my walks, I was learning from people. But along those walks, I started seeing pigeon keeper, the flocks of pigeons above, uh, above buildings. And, I, and, and you know, there, it's kind of an old, old, old sport, mostly brought over by Italians, um, now mostly a Puerto Rican and black sport, um, where they keep pigeons, flocks of pigeons on roofs. And uh, I became very fascinated. It was just a view, very beautiful um, site. And I got to know some of the pigeon keepers. And... Since it's generally illegal in uh, wealthy neighborhoods because people don't like pigeons, right. um, you end up going to kind of rougher neighborhoods. And so that's kind of what brought me to the Bronx. But it was a, it was an excuse to go to the Bronx as a way to kind of, you know, explore parts of the world that uh, I had only heard negative things about but didn't really understand. And, you know, one of the things I'd learned along those walks was when people say negative things about something, it's usually – there's usually more to it than that. There's mm-hmm. usually more there. Yeah. I love that. You were looking for pigeons that brought you there. So this all started these walks into Hunts Point neighborhood in the Bronx, right? But that walk was not simply a day tripper's sort of one-time stroll into a different neighborhood. It became, you know, in reading your book, I learned it became something more of a commitment, a commitment to the place, commitment to the people going back, seeing more, talking to more. I'm curious about this practice of attention that you were really cultivating, paying attention to the people in the place. Can you tell us about I don't know, just from your experience, what that kind of attentiveness costs, maybe what that 
that practice of paying attention for so long did to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, it completely changed who I am. Um, so in that sense, you know, it cost me, cost me money in the sense that I gave up my Wall Street career to do it. Um, it, uh, but, uh, it also, um, completely changed how I view the world. Um, you know, I kind of jokingly say I walked into Hunts Point, uh, um, you know, a uh, vegetarian uh, atheist, and I walked out a church-going Big Mac eater. <laughs> um, you know, um, so for, for the, 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 to me, it ended up being a very emotionally draining process, but a very rewarding one in the end. I mean, it didn't. It had its hard moments. You know, um, there's a reason. Like when we see a homeless person, we generally kind of go the go often go to the other side of the street or you know look away mm-hmm. um, because it's hard. Um, it's it forces us to to ask a lot of very hard questions. Um, but you know, I had been looking away, kind of intellectually, um, in an intellectually approved way, which is just looking at numbers and statistics. Right? You know, you don't have to deal with the people if you just deal in statistics. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I just think you, you know, by looking away for so long, you just miss so much. I mean, you know, life is, <laughs> is life is, you know, not look, not sitting in front of a screen, looking at numbers. Uh-huh. It's, it's dealing with people. You say you became a church going Big Mac eater, but the Big Mac part is not, uh, just incidental to this whole thing. You spent quite a lot of time in McDonald's. Yeah. It's very, very essential. I mean, I think I even have a chapter on McDonald's, you do. um, uh, yeah. you know, they're partly the the church going and the Big Mac eating go hand in hand because in a lot of a lot of communities I'm in, which have been um, abandoned mm-hmm. by so many institutions or harmed by so many institutions, the two institutions that I found that still were committed to the neighborhood and still provided to the neighborhood were McDonald's and churches. You know, you can literally go into certain towns on a, um, like a Tuesday night and very little is open. At least no, nothing is open that you can just walk into and right. find a community with the exception of McDonald's and churches. Um, you know, the, the McDonald's is open more often than the church. But, mm-hmm. um, but you know, in that, that, that consequently, um, it's a place where a lot of homeless go um, or people who are living on the margins go to just basically sit for four hours. You know, they'll, they'll go to the, you know, if they have absolutely nothing, they'll go to the... Um, trash can fish out an old cup um, in a newspaper and sit there and just stay warm or stay cool depending on what the weather outside is and you know and but more than that it's not just about and charge their phone and you know have free wi-fi but it's also about rejoining society in a way where they're not entirely stigmatized mm-hmm. they're just another guy sitting in a booth or another girl sitting in the booth um, doing their thing um, and so I was going going into them basically because my new friends, the people I was I was becoming close to, were going there. But I also then started realizing, you know, it's not just people who are in the margin who use it as um, community spaces. It's people who, um, you know, are solidly working class and have their act together. They still use McDonald's as a community center. And you speak about this. I mean, it's in the subtitle of the book as something like back row. American. I think maybe for people who are just learning about um, 
your work, maybe through this episode, it's important to know, maybe know something about this distinction between back row America and front row America. Can you just give us a little introduction to what you mean when you use that, those terms? I mean, front row America is me. It's, um, it's probably some of the listeners, um, postgraduate degree, mm-hmm. um, left their hometown as soon as they could to go get highly educated, um, was, um, given that this is a Catholic, uh, broadcast. It's this part will probably not um, resonate with your readers, but it's people who don't attend church mm-hmm. generally, um, who focus on their career primarily over their faith, over their family, over the over the geographical location, over their hometown. They're extraordinarily transient. Um, we don't like the, you know, we think of kind of homeless as transient, but the kind of very successful educated class is extraordinary. They'll they'll move a different to a different country if the job is that, yeah. um, you know, and, um, so it, it's, 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 you know, you can also call another phrase is very kind of secular elite. Um, and, and it's, it's, um, different. It's, it's not particularly a left right thing. You have, um, parts of both parties, um, at the top that is kind of, um, that, um, and it's, it's the front row, is effectively another phrase is the policy class, or you know, I think people now since COVID call them the laptop class. But people who generally, um, you know, their morality comes from their education, and it's kind of core to who they are, and that's and they're very powerful. They have a lot you know, in, in terms of political power and, and cultural power. So that's the front row class, and then how would you describe the back row? People who, um, you know. This is what's called an ethnographic type. It doesn't fit any particular one person, yeah. but it fits them in an aggregate. Is, um, you know, if, if they have college education, it's maybe at a community college, maybe at a trade school, mm-hmm. um, perhaps state school, smaller state school, um, you know, or a smaller um, religious institution. Um, it's not somebody who um, went to, you know, they, they Princeton is out of their radar. Right. Um, you know, the, the Harvard is out of their radar. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Chris Arnotti, author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. He's also busy walking the world these days, and he writes about that at his Walking the World substack. So as we talk about front row America, back row America, it seemed to me that one of the major points of distinction you see between front row and back row concerns, on the one hand, education, but also how value is measured. I wanted to talk about that because it's an important point in what I was reading from your book, because it's different than saying that Americans on, in the front row have what is valued, and those on the back row simply desire what the front row already has. It seems like you're saying something else that's a little bit more complicated than that. I think that's what the front row would wish the world to be. They would wish that everybody want, wants what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they believe everybody wants what they have. They believe, you know, so when they see somebody who is, um, quote, by their measures, not so successful, they, they say, well, just get more education. Mm. You know, that's a solution to, to any of our problems. Um, when in fact, you know, not people don't value education um, the way that we in the front row value education. Education is um, just another life choice. It's not, you know, what they value in many ways is um, what I call kind of non-credential forms of meaning, um, things that you can't really put on a resume and you can't measure with numbers, things like faith, and, you know, since we're on a um, religious broadcast, it's not necessarily theologically sound faith, but it's, it's faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's kind of the sense, the re- recognition that um, there's something larger than, than ourselves out there. 
Um, it's community, uh, especially organic local community like family, like place, um, and like nation. Um, and um, it's those things that you know, the kind of the the kind of old three Fs: faith, family, flag. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's things that kind of you know you're gifted at birth. It's values that you're gifted at birth. You don't have to pay for them. You know, um, and they're very, they're very, and, and, you know, as long as you are gifted, born into them, you're very accepted into them. You spoke uh, a little bit earlier about in the front row, kind of choosing, desiring education and mobility over geographical location. One of the things I was I was struck by in your account throughout the book was something you were just touching on just a moment ago was the connection to hometown. Um, and many of the people that you talked to and you brought forth throughout the book, you might ask questions like, well, you know, do you want to go somewhere else? And they could say, no, I, I wouldn't want to go somewhere else, even though this community is that they're living in is collapsing and they feel that collapse economically, they don't feel the collapse in terms of the place and the connection to the place. I wonder if you could just talk about this a little bit more, like the importance of place, especially for back row, back row America, as you call it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was the it was the biggest intellectual change um, mm. because to the degree I had politics prior to all this, um, it was kind of your classic technocratic neoliberal, you know, um, NAFTA is good, globalization is good, higher profits for companies are good. Um, and so, you know, I, if somebody told me, you know, I would never tell someone this because that was never who I was, but if, if someone complained about the factory in their town moving, you know, I kind of mentally would say, well, just move. Yeah. And that's kind of the, that's kind of the um, reaction of 99% of the front row, um, which, you know, it took me a while to realize how insulting that is. Um, and this is, again, the process of listening. When you hear someone tell you over and over and over and over again, it's insulting, then maybe it's insulting. And um, place is deeply meaningful to people, uh, you know, it's, it's, it might be a bit of a stretch of analogy, but, um, you know, it's kind of like just move. It's a bit to say, well, just change your religion, mm. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you have to become Muslim now. You know, yeah. um, it, it's deeply core to who people are, um, is how they identify themselves. They're from, the, you know, they're from West Virginia. They're from, um, and it's, it's also the source of a lot of connections. You know, it's, 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 it's there, it's, it's both, you know, in the classic sense of, um, you know, in a kind of in a more intellectual way, it's the classic. It's it's the regulatory body. It's the kind of communal body that that kind of you know keeps them in check, um, and also at the same time as their safety net. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you know, true place in many senses is an extension of the family. Um, it behaves in the same way. And you know, again, it's like someone saying, "Just divorce your family." Yeah. Um, and independent of that, that's kind of the more. Um, that's at a more deeper level, but at, at the economic level, you know, on, on that, even on the economic, it's extraordinarily offensive because you're basically asking someone to sell the one asset they own often mm-hmm. at, at, a, at a low price, um, you know, just give up everything, the, the sole thing you have capital in. Yeah. You talk about uh, the non-credential communities, mm-hmm. value, not according to credential, but according to other things. And you mentioned church is one of the ways in which a sort of non-credential community forms uh, attachment to place, hometown. But another, and this is, you know, a major feature of your book is it's a major feature of the life of the people that you were with is drugs. Correct. Um, 
And that might strike people as they hear it for the first time here as as sort of odd. You're talking about a a sort of non-credential community around or having to do with drugs. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, it's an inconvenient fact that, uh, you know, I I wasn't using and I didn't use. That was one of, I just want to make it clear that I, you know, I I was very careful not to, not to consume um, any drugs beyond alcohol. Um, But, um, I would spend a lot of time in crack houses or, or drug traps um, at two in the morning, three in the morning, because that's where the people I, I was getting close to were. Um, they're welcoming community spaces. They're, they're fun. <laughs> you know, I don't think people want to hear that. <laughs> but, you know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's not, you know, think of an Irish pub, mm. you know, um, in, a, in a very distorted way. It's where you know people like you who, um, you know, who also understand you. Um, you know, it's very rare for people who've gone through a lot of very um, traumatic childhoods um, um, or um, a lot of uh, dysfunction for other people to understand them. And, you know, it's the equivalent of walking into their, their bar and everybody, everybody else has had the same experience mm. or at least can c- comprehend what they've gone through. And so it's a very communal space. And, you know, that's kind of the the key to understanding how to um, uh, how how to how to deal with addiction is understanding that a lot of people are using it for community because they don't have community someplace else. They've lost their family, they've lost their place, you know, they they've lost their um, faith, um, and um, people, you know, the fact that communities form in McDonald's um, is. I think is extraordinary. For me, it was a big, it was a big um, kind of, um, it was a, it was a big kind of canary in the coal mine in the sense that think about the idea that people form communities in McDonald's. McDonald's were formed um, or built to be kind of very soulless transactions. I mean, if you look at the decor, even it's meant to get you in, get your food, and get you out. Um, but the fact that people are spending three to four hours there forming social groups tells you how, how you know how how deeply people want community and want connection, the personal connection. So people are often used using drugs because, you know, it's the thing that everybody around them is doing and it's a, it's a way to join. It provides a community space. It's a bad one, but, you know, in the absence of kind of, quote, good communities, negative communities were formed. Yeah. This is Leonard Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking with Chris Arnotti, author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. I really found the book uh, in a lot of ways about the discovery of community as you're talking about it here. Um, The kind of resilience of that desire for meaning um, and for value and for connection, the gating of human community according to, as you talk about it, credentials, the sort of resilience to discover, find, reach out for community in all these different ways. I'd love to think about this a little bit more together, that it makes me think that the real social scourge here, trying to put this together, is the gating of the access to human community, according to all these ways in which, in modern society, we have gated the access, credentials, um, a sort of conformity, this one way of defining success and value. I just wanted to bring that up and see your thoughts on that. Um, just as I sat with your with the work, I really was struck by that. 
that feeling for community. Yeah, you know, um, I always say that kind of, you know, if you don't want to read the book, the take home bumper sticker lesson is everybody who wants to feel a valued member of something larger than themselves. Mm. I mean, community is fine, but people want a community of, of purpose, mm. one, one that they feel has a, a, a transcendent or metaphysical purpose. Um, and that's why I think, you know, um, not that you asked me, but I think probably quite the, 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 the most perfect community is the congregation. Mm. because you're a valued member of something larger than yourself, something truly larger than yourself. And I think that's why faith is so essential. And that's that's why I, I came to um, appreciate faith the way I did. But I think, um, you know, contrast that kind of with secular institutions. Um, one of the kind of most frustrating things, and I, I realize I'm saying this on Notre Dame campus, is um, kind of the arch institute, the highest institution and the kind of secular front row world is college campuses mm -hmm. that you can't just stroll onto campus. I, I always, on, I, I always say campus. is imagine, imagine, you know, yeah. in, I hear Harvard professors and Princeton professors talk, give these long pedantic speeches on inequality. And I'm like, if a homeless person walked onto your campus, you'd throw them out. Right. In a second. Right. Much less just a working class dude. Yeah. Like, you know, if he's wearing orange, then you might think he's a workman. But and kind of try to direct him. But and you're wearing orange right yeah. now, just as people, and we're on campus. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, but you know, they're gonna they're gonna kick you off. Mm. Um, and so the the kind of the elitism that's fundamentally in our kind of educational system. I, I I've moved to the point of it almost being kind of comedy to me because it's so frustrating. The idea mm -hmm. of when, when college campuses talk so professors on college campuses, tenured professors talk so much about inequality, it's just you know I don't even know what to say. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're 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 kind of the secular elite world is 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 structurally fundamentally elitist because um, you're destroying the institutions, church, place. Um, and family and nation that are gifted to everybody. There is, I mean, they're truly, they're truly non-hierarchical in the sense that everybody has access to them. Each within them, there's hierarchies. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But you know, you're taking away people's force, force, their very soul, the very point of their meaning, and, and that's just, and you're replacing it with a system which really just ranks people by how much stuff they have and how much educated they are. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a fundamentally hierarchical system that's elitist. Mm -hmm. And in many of the towns that you walked in, maybe all of them, the cities and towns, one of the things it seemed that you were documenting is the loss of opportunity within the towns. This is part of what um, creates the pressures on people that brings the quality of life so far down that leads, you know, that creates the roads to drugs as the alternative or other, uh, other ways of deviating from that. What kind of opportunities, I mean, I think we could probably imagine, but like how did you see this loss of opportunity as really at the heart of the sort of sadness that was there? Yeah, I mean, I'm generally, an, I'm not, um, I think I think that focusing on materialism is, is misses a lot of the point, but material is, is there. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's at, at a very basic level, people need a steady income that doesn't require credentials. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, we kind of hit the sweet spot in the 50s through 70s where people could walk out of high school and uh, straight into a job, mm -hmm. a job, a lifetime job that, that gave them um, stability. Yep. And stability is a key because stability means the ability to buy a home, 
um, and form a family. And, you know, when, when people look at um, out of um, births, out of, um, out of uh, single, single parent births, um, a lot of that's economic. Um, it, there's a cultural side there. I'm right. not going to say there's not. But, um, you know, people would love that you put their house in order first and then have children. But they're going to have children. There's, there's a universal desire, especially among women, to have child, to have children. And if they can't do it with their economic shape in order, they're still going to do it. Mm. Um, so what you really need is you need to have their, their economic house in order. Um, and, you know, you, you, the job market, especially for people without a college degree, is very tenuous. Um, it's very transactional, um, you know. We, we, people come and go. Um, there's there's never a sense of stability. Um, and where you have that stability, um, you see less and less of the problems that I talk about. Um, once once you kind of lose that stability, then all the other institutions are more likely to fail. There's other pressures causing these institutions to fail, largely cultural pressures. But the policy doesn't help. Yeah. We were talking even before we came on here about— I just want to oh, say go ahead, real quickly, though, that, you know, just to say I— as much, I, I, to degree I have politics, I guess I'm a Catholic worker or whatever in that range. Yeah. But um, just handing people money doesn't work Yeah, because it needs to be meaningful work. Mm. That's an important distinction. I'm glad you brought that up. I was just – I was going to say before we, we came on here, we were talking about a uh, city that you love, El Paso. Um, I was wondering if you can maybe talk about some of the, the places that you've really uh, grown fond of that you've been to. You've been to a lot of places now. Uh, some of the some of the towns, some of the cities that have really endeared themselves to you. In general, what I what I've found I really like is um, effectively towns that have um, generally working class towns mm-hmm. um, that are built on faith. Um, El Paso is probably at this point eighty five percent Mexican American. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to always tell my conservative friends, you know, you talk about the fifties of having, you know. Um, church-going people who just want to build a family, get a, get 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 an F four fifty, you know, put the American flag on it, and and take their kids to you know to to baseball games. Yeah, that's Mexican American communities. Mm. You know, go to El Paso, go you know, go around, and it's you know, it's um, they go to church on Sunday, and after church they get in their F one fifty. It might have a Mexican flag as well as American flag, but you know, think about the old Irish American. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and uh, they go picnic in the park or, you know, they, they have stable families. Um, so it's, it's, it's all built on a foundation of a recognition of those non-credential values mm-hmm. that are still there. Um, it hasn't been supplanted by the kind of desire for money, desire for um, – and um, there's, there's economic success there too. There's hardworking, um, moving up the ladder, um, progress. Um, similarly, you know, I spent uh, eight, eight weeks in a, in a, a working-class Muslim um, neighborhood in Istanbul. Mm. Um, similar thing, um, you know, focus on the family, foc- focus on the mosque, um, which provides a kind of regulatory body that, you know, keeps them um, in check. Um, and I see that across the world where I'm in places where, and it's not, you know, it's not a heavy, heavy, heavy handed faith. It's just, it's just imbued in everybody. It's just there. It's kind of it's central to who they are. Um, you know, it's not it's not a kind of token faith where you just go to church and say, hey, you know, it's just it's it's they actually, you know, it informs kind of it, it in many ways. It's how they how they view themselves in the world and how they view their behavior. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now walking 
really around the world and and why you started doing this yeah um it's you know i am um, central to this book and less central than what i'm doing now this book is walks um mm. and you know when you when you drive in a car or get in a cab you kind of fast forward through so many parts yeah um and walking is the one place where you're you know you're forced to to see the whole movie um and sometimes the best parts of the movie are the parts you might have skipped over mm. um and so for me walking is both uh, a form of um exercise but it's it's primarily an intellectual exercise where i'm i'm learning about a place and there's no better place way to learn about a place than to than than walk it um you know and use this public transportation you know um <laughs> um i took the five bus here and i can tell you a lot about the bus system in Notre, you know saint south, south bend, bend. Yeah. yeah um and it, it forces you also to um interact with people you might kind of just fast forward over um and um you know i took a greyhound bus here to, to south bend from new york city um it's a 21 hour trip and uh, it was it was interesting but uh, you know you're dealing i was forced to deal at at a very communal level with people who um you know i might not want to deal with um people who are, are struggling in many ways um and you end up having to bond over a shared experience so it really it allows you to see a side of the world um at a at a very granular level and you know in terms of going beyond the us that's just out of curiosity you know i i kind of to me in many ways the the project that resulted in dignity was for me a person who didn't have a lot of uh, experience with faith was really kind of a a lesson in religion um, a lesson in faith and in some senses this, what i'm doing now um going to foreign cities um spending 3 weeks in them and not using the car ever <laughs> you know kind of going quote to the bad neighborhood in a foreign city or just the the less understood neighborhood and getting an apartment and spending 3 weeks just literally walking and then taking buses um is kind of my world religion um uh class yeah so yeah. and you're writing about this yeah. to share this can you tell people about what what you want to provide this is through Substack um putting out dispatches now and again with your with your own photos which are always stunning. Um yeah, I would like people to kind of get a sense of um these these towns. Mm. Um but not just again not the postcard, not the postcard. Yeah. Um but you know I have a I have an odd way of traveling that you know may not be for everybody, but you know people might want to see the results of it. Um you know, I I don't go to museums. um i don't go to the places a guidebooks tell you to go mm. um because um that's not how people live their lives i try to travel like you know how i try to in some ways to the smallest way i can do, to the best approximation i can do is to kind of become a local mm. i mean i recognize that i'll never do that i don't speak the language in many places i don't i don't look like local people but to the degree i can kind of immerse myself in kind of the daily daily life of istanbul or hanoi or seoul um Uh, you know and and then bring people to the stories of what of what I meet who I meet and what I see yeah i just discovered the substack myself so i'm a new reader to that which i was reading it even just last night and was like totally enraptured and I, i'm going to keep reading along i dove you know head first into the book dignity i would encourage others to do the same um and especially this thing that you're talking about here in the end um kind of putting yourself into the positions where you have I don't know if this is the right way to put it have to deal with 
the people that are here, right? And all the ways in which we, especially in, in modern society, have maneuvers to get out of that. I think maybe I wanted to end by talking about conversion. And I hope that terminology is okay. Like a turning away from those insulating maneuvers away from that contact and the will, the desire, building up the habit to go towards that contact, walking into it quite literally. Can you speak about conversion in these terms? Is that is that an appropriate term? Um, it's it's um, you mean it in the theological sense? However, however you um, like to take it up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely for me. You know, I think people look at the arc of my career, um, who um, from a kind of ten thousand feet level, and said, "Oh, you went from being a particle physicist to a banker to you know." document documenting homelessness um you know they, they it's kind of are you doing penance <laughs> you know <laughs> and um i used to push back against that mm. you know as kind of like no that's kind of silly but yeah you know, to some level you know uh, you, i feel like i'm kind of making up for at least intellectually for what i was doing before mm. um you know of so for me it's 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 very much about seeing the world in a new way um and to the degree that, you know, it's changed me, um, I'm very careful not to, to say that I now see the world the right way because if I saw the world the wrong way in the past, <laughs> you know, I, I, what's come for me is a humbleness, a recognition not to be so sure of myself. But I think that humbleness to me is, is at its core about, is what faith is about, mm. is uh, recognize your humility. Um, so I think, um, I think the term has resonance with me. Very good. I've been talking today with Chris Arnotti. He's the author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, a beautiful book, both in its writing and in the photography that you'll find in there. As I said earlier, he's also busy walking the world, writing about it at his Walking the World Substack. I encourage you to check that out as well. Chris, thanks so much for this conversation. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. This has been a production of OSV Podcasts. To learn more, visit osvpodcasts.com.